Thank you so much for listening to today's podcast of the teaching at Life Journey Church in Crozet, Virginia. We believe that the gospel really is good news, that the blood of Jesus worked, and that Jesus meant it when he said, it is finished. In Christ, we are dead to sin and alive to God, forgiven and free, clean and close, holy and beloved, blessed and made new. If God is doing something special in your life, we would love for you to tell us about it. You can simply email us at info at lifejourneyva.com. One of the reasons we are able to provide these weekly podcasts is because of the generosity of people like you. If you would like to support the proclamation of the gospel of the grace of God, you can make a donation now on our website, lifejourneyva.com. Let's face it. Who of us have not been there, done that, got the t-shirt of the same old sins happening over and over and over in our lives? We don't want to do them. We, we hate that it happens, but it happens. And let's don't just think about, you know, the big sins. We can think of those, but it sins, you know, any sort of sin. We don't want to do it, but yet it happens. And we've all taken these, you know, these pilgrimages up to an altar, and we've promised God that we're never going to do it again. And, and we, we have these crocodile alligator tears that flow, but yet we know what? It happens yet again, and it hurts. It hurts because it's, this hurt is not like some of the other ones. If we're rejected by somebody, a, a wife of 25 years says, hey, I'm trading you in for somebody else, another model, that hurt, that's an outside-in sort of hurt. But this hurt of when sin happens yet again, it's kind of an inside-out hurt. It's demoralizing. It, it's even debilitating because we feel like we're unuseful now for God. So how do we find healing for this hurt of when sin happens yet again? This is our third week talking about it. So if you've missed the first couple, I encourage you to go back to the podcast. But we've been parked in this passage of Scripture written by Paul to a guy named Titus, and it's called Titus, pretty appropriate title. Um, Not overly creative, but that's what it's called. It's in Titus, it's in your Bible. And Paul and Titus arrived on an island called Crete, which is just off the coast of Greece. And these people were major, major pagan, deceitful, lying people. They were pagans. And Paul and Silas, they start telling him about Jesus, telling him about God, telling him about this amazing news that they can actually be reconciled with God by trusting Jesus. And many of these wicked, pagan, sin-filled people start believing in Jesus. They're born again. They're rescued. They're redeemed. Whatever phrase, they're saved. Whatever phrase you want to live by. But their behavior, well, I mean, let's face it, for their entire existence had been really, really bad. And so some people from Jerusalem, I think with meaning very, very well, said we have a solution for how we want to improve their behavior. It's got a behavior improvement plan. We're going to go back, now that we have Jesus, we're going to go back to the law in order to learn how to actually live. And so they're trying to put these recently converted pagan to Christian people underneath some of the Mosaic law. It sounds reasonable, right? I mean, it sounds like a good idea at surface. We want to manage behavior. We want to modify some sins. And so let's give them a bunch of don't do this and do this and don't do that and do this. But there's a problem with that. 
The problem is that Paul, the Apostle Paul, is 100% opposed to that sort of idea. He's absolutely opposed to it. And so he actually leaves Titus in Crete, and Paul goes on to the next place to plant more churches to spread the gospel even further, and he leaves Titus there with a mission. His mission was to continue preaching the true gospel and to identify folk in that young, fledgling church who would be able to stand up against this false gospel of Jesus plus the law, Jesus plus a mixture of Moses, to stand up against them and defend. They're called elders. We'll get in on January 3rd a little bit more about the function of elders and our desire for more elders at Life Journey. And so Paul leaves Titus there and he sends them this letter to encourage them to resist these people who are coming from Jerusalem saying, you've got to modify your behavior by living by laws. You've got to defend against that because that's not going to work. And let's just be honest. As American Christians, it sounds more reasonable for us to live by some Christian laws in order to modify our behavior. So why in the world is Paul so opposed What's so wrong? What's so problematic about giving Christians laws to live by in order to modify their behavior and manage their sin problem? Well, Paul simply knew something that those Jewish Christians from Jerusalem simply did not know. And he writes it very, very plainly in his letter to the, to the Corinthians when he says this, 1 Corinthians chapter 15. He says, the power of sin is the law. But thanks be to God who gives us actual victory through our Lord Jesus Christ. Do we see what he's saying here? I think both Paul and the Jewish Christians from Jerusalem, the Judaizers, I think they both wanted the behaviors of the, the, these Cretan, former pagan believers to improve. I think they both wanted the behavior to improve but they were going about it in two totally opposite ways. Again, the Jewish Christians were saying that the behavior is improved by going to laws, to rules, to regulations. But Paul knows what this would actually accomplish. Paul knew that the law actually increases sinning, not decreases it. He says that in Romans chapter 5, verse 20. Think of it this way. What do you need to put into your gas tank in order for your car to go down the road? It's, come on, we can get this one, right? Okay, good. Gasoline. All right. Just as gasoline is the fuel for an engine, just as oxygen is the fuel of a flame, please listen, please get this. This is Paul, not Walt. The law is the fuel for sinning. Sounds so backwards, doesn't it? I mean, let's just be honest. It just sounds so different. The law is the power of sin. So let's use our gray matter here. God's given it to us. It exists between these two dangly things that hang out here. If we truly want to sin less, if we truly want to cut off the power of sin that lives in our mortal body, what is it that we should not live by? The law. Doesn't that, I mean, let's just be honest, that sounds strange, doesn't it? It sounds very backwards. 
This is controversial. This is scandalous. By the way, I don't have time to get into this. This is why Paul was beaten within inches of his life several times by Christian Jews, by Judaizers. But Paul knew something they did not know. It's a scandalous. If you cut off the fuel supply to an engine, the engine dies. If you cut off oxygen to a flame, the flame dies. Well, what happens if we cut off the law? Sin dies. Well, it's scandalous. And I'm not even asking you to agree with me. Please don't just agree with me while the preacher said it. I'm just asking you to see what the apostles actually taught. Anybody remember this thing called the Great Commission, Matthew chapter 28? Anybody heard of that thing, Matthew 28? Jesus, standing in front of his disciples, which become the apostles, he tells them, he says, look, I want you guys to teach everyone else, which we would come generations later, I want you to teach them everything that I've told you to teach them. Right? We're familiar with the Great Commission. So if the apostles were commissioned to teach us what Jesus taught them to teach us, where do we go to receive that teaching? How about the letters that the apostles wrote to various Christians and churches that were being set up? And so that's what we're doing. We go to these letters, and the apostle Paul is teaching us what Jesus taught him. The power of sin is actually the law. So if you cut off the law, you cut off the power of sin to the point where Paul says in Romans chapter 4, he says, where there is no law, there is, it's coming up, Romans chapter 4, where there is no law, there is no transgression. Let's just be honest. This sounds so different, doesn't it? It sounds so backwards. I've got to give my church, my congregation, my whatever, I've got to give Christians laws to live by in order to curb transgressions. But that's not the way it works. It's actually the fuel for it. Let me explain how that works as best as I can. I don't know everything about any of you, but let me tell you something about yourself. If you have a sin that happens yet again, and you've hated it, you've hated it, and you've tried everything that you can think of to try to stop it, to stop doing it, whatever it is, I guarantee that there has been some sort of rule, some sort of law that you have created in order to try to modify that sin and manage your behavior, sinful behavior. For example, if, if the sin that happens yet again, over and over, is the sin of lust, maybe internet pornography, probably because you hate it so much, you've put up some sort of screensaver that says, I will not lust after a woman. So you put it on your screensaver so that you remind yourself, I will not, I will not, I will not, I will not. Well, you get up one morning, you go down, you fire up the computer, get you some coffee, everything's going good. You're not even thinking about a woman. And what comes up on the screen? I will not lust. And so what happens? Sin that actually lives in your mortal bodies is energized. And now you can't get the thought of a woman out of your mind. Sin is the power. The law is the power of sin. Think about another habitual sin, something that you've 
wanted to stop for years and years and years, but yet you just can't. It happens over and over. Maybe it's something you, you, you hate the way that your body looks. You absolutely hate it, and you criticize your body all the time. And so you create some sort of law, maybe literally or maybe just mentally, I don't know, and you put maybe a sticky note on your mirror and it says, I will not criticize my body because you don't want to because you know that your body is a temple of the Holy Spirit and you're fearfully and wonderfully made. And so you don't want to criticize. You don't want to go down that road. And so you create laws in order to not. Well, you wake up, you go in to brush your teeth. You're not even thinking about your body. You think about all the 17,000 things you got to do today. And there it is. I will not criticize my body. Now, all of a sudden, what happens? Sin that lives in your flesh is energized. It's empowered now because of the law. Let me demonstrate this with a little activity. Whatever, whatever you do, do not do what I'm about to say. Don't you dare, Brandon. Your, your eternal life, Doug, depends on what I'm about to say. Do not think of a pink elephant. Don't do it. Jeff, don't do it. Don't think of that long pink trunk and those pink tusks with maybe those big African ears, you know, t- uh, pink ears, you know, those big, huge trunk legs, that little tiny tail. What's up with that? Don't think of that. Maybe there's a little pink bow on the tail. Don't think of it. Don't think of it. What are you thinking of? And that's probably what you're going to be thinking of the rest of the day. That stupid pink elephant with a bow on the tail. I know that's silly, but here's the point. Paul knew something because of the revelation that Jesus had given him that the rest of these people did not know. The law is actually the power of sin. And so if we want to sin less, then we don't need to add law. So if it's not law that brings about a curbing of sinning, then what does? And this is where we come to our passage in Titus chapter 2 that we've looked at for three weeks now. Titus 2, starting in verse 11. For the grace of God has appeared, bringing salvation to all men. And everybody agrees with that. It's the grace of God that brings salvation. But the grace of God also does something else. The grace of God is, in the, one, is the very thing that instructs us to deny ungodliness and worldly desires and to live sensibly, righteously, and godly in this present age. And again, I know this is the third week of us looking at this, but this is huge. Grace not only brings salvation, but grace, not law, teaches us to say no to sin and yes to Jesus. Go to verse 14 and 15. I mean, 13 and 14. It says, looking, we're looking, we're anticipating, we're excited for the blessed hope and the appearing of the glory of our great God and Savior, Jesus Christ. Now, verse 14 gives us a picture into this thing of the grace of God that's appeared. Verse 14 says, who gave himself for us to redeem us from every lawless deed and to purify for himself a people. That's what we looked at the first week. As we see more and more just how forgiven we actually are, we sin less. The grace of God instructs us to say no to sin and yes to Jesus by seeing just how forgiven we actually are. If that intrigues you, go back and check out the podcast. Last week, which is exactly what Craig uh, was just talking about, is we have 
also by grace, we are now a people of his own possession. The more we see that we're actually his, guess what all of a sudden becomes less and less appealing? It's not law that gets us there. It's the grace of God being shed abroad, the love of Jesus being shed abroad in our hearts. And then today, here's what we're going to land this thing on is this, this third idea, zealous for good deeds. If we want to summarize this whole thing, it's this, the more grace of God we see, the more changed by God we'll be. It's seeing grace that actually changes our behavior. And so we're going to look at zealous for good deeds. That's where we're going to finish this thing up as our few remaining minutes we have left. If you believe in Jesus, then you, according to Paul, he's describing you as zealous for good deeds, to which some of us, maybe not all of us, but some of us would say, Paul don't know me. Paul doesn't know me. I'm not zealous for a good deed. He doesn't know me. Sure, the apostle Paul does not know you, but Jesus does. And he knows what he's created now in you. And Jesus reveals this to Paul. Paul writes it down for us. So if you believe Jesus, you are actually zealous for good deeds. This is talking about your heart, the new creation, your spirit, your new human spirit, the new you that's truly been born again, who you are now at your core. You are actually zealous for good deeds. By show of hand, does anybody enjoy being lied to? Anybody? No? Kathy? No? No? But maybe there will be one. I'm not the biggest, the best prankster in the world, but I I like to, you know, mess around with the kids and with April. And uh, several years ago, um, Gwen was just a little baby. She's the only one that we had at the time. Uh, and, and And I had this idea of putting Gwen down in the middle of the living room, and then I was gonna sneak back behind the corner of the room And when April came home from a long 14-hour shift from the hospital, she'd see Gwen there and think, hmm, that's weird. And then here was my bright idea. I was going to lay passed out like I was dead on the other side of the car. I know, not my finest hour, uh, but it made sense to me at the time. And so I hear her come in. Gwen, remember, I mean, she's just a babe, not even crawling. She's sitting there, and I'm, I'm around the corner, and April comes in, and she can't see me because I'm around the corner. And she comes, and she's calling my name. She's like, why is Gwen sitting in the middle of the living room? And Walt, where are you? And so she gets close, and I know she's about to get to Gwen. Therefore, she's about to see me. And so I take a big breath. And I mean, I'm like tongue out, like I'm like trying, like CSI sort of an actor, actor sort of deal. I didn't do like ketchup all over the floor. That would have been cool. But... <laughs> So I was expecting a quick little, Walt, you idiot, get up. I've had a long day. i got to go take a shower. That's what I was expecting, you know, just a quick little, oh, no. That's not what I got. I got zero to six hysteria with complete wailing, gnashing of teeth, the whole nine yards, and I am instantly realized I royally, royally messed up. No one likes being lied to. And there is a very real lie that is very popular, very common in Christianity when it has to, having to do with who we actually now are. I don't think Christian leaders intentionally are lying about this. Hey, let's try to deceive the masses. I don't think so. But the truth is simply not being told. 
And here's the lie. Here's the deal. It's the lie about who you actually now are in your new heart. You see, the Bible has a ton of verses that talks about a wicked heart, a sinful heart, a hard heart. In fact, here's a great example up on the screen. It is uh, Jeremiah chapter 17, verse 9, Old Covenant. He says the heart is deceitful, more deceitful than all else. It is desperately sick. In fact, the word deceitful, it's the Hebrew word Jacob, which we get Jacob from. If you're familiar with Jacob and Esau, Jacob was the deceiver. He was literally pulling the leg of his older brother. That's where we get that from. And so he was the deceiver. Jacob means deceiver. Our heart is deceitful, Jacob, uh, uh, Jeremiah says. But listen, this may be of shock, I don't know, but the heart of Christianity is not simply a behavior improvement plan. Christianity at its core is not just about people with bad behaviors trying to shuffle them through and now have good behaviors. That's not the core mission of Christianity. The heart, pardon the pun, of Christianity is heart surgery, spiritual heart surgery. In, in Mark chapter 7, Jesus is talking with a bunch of Pharisees and scribes, you know, the religious of the religious of the Jew, Jewish day. On the outside, these guys were impeccable. At one point, Jesus called them whitewashed tombs. They look great on the outside, but on the inside, full of dead man's bones. And in Mark chapter 7, Jesus describing these guys who all the, 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 the culture would say, those guys got it together. This is how Jesus describes them. He says, for from within, out of the heart of men, Proceed evil thoughts, fornication, uh, thefts, murders, adulteries. So Jesus is saying it's not the outside. There's a problem on the inside. In essence, he's saying that the heart of the problem is a problem of the heart. The issue isn't just bad behavior. It's a bad heart. And because of Adam and Eve, our heart at birth was actually entangled with sin, and nothing we could ever do could fix it. And that's why Jesus came. Jesus didn't come simply to just come into our hearts. He came to actually give us new hearts. In fact, this isn't news come Jesus' time. In, in Ezekiel, this is, I think, some 600 or so years before Jesus is on the scene, Ezekiel receives a prophecy from the Lord saying, Jesus is, God says, then I will sprinkle. Talking about when Jesus comes. This is, this is from before Jesus. He says, then when that day, when Jesus comes, I will sprinkle clean water on you and you will be clean. I will cleanse you from all of your filthiness, from all of your idols. Well, how is he going to do that? Well, he explains the next verse, 26. He says, I will give you, here it is. I'm not making this up, a new heart. And I will put a new spirit within you. I will remove, this is that heart transplant surgery. I will remove the heart of stone. That's the old man. That's the one that's deceitful. That's the one that is wicked above all else, desperately sick. I will remove that, who you once were. And I will give you a heart of flesh, meaning it's alive. It's actually alive. It's actually righteous with my own righteousness. I will put my capital S spirit in you. And I will cause you to walk in my statutes. So let's get this. Make sure we understand this. At physical birth, each one of us, yes, had a very wicked heart. And we got it honestly from our parents. But Jesus came to rescue us from our own heart. 
And we now have a new heart, a new human spirit. But he says we don't just have a new human spirit. We actually now have his spirit also living in us. We don't have time to get into the details of this. I wish we did. But think in your mind um, of all the regulations that the people of Israel had to do in order for the presence of God to dwell in their midst in the tabernacle. Everything had to be pure. Pure gold, pure uh, oil, pure ointment, pure uh, everything. Pure, pure jewels, even blood of pure sacrifices had to be shed in order to cover up impurities of the people. Everything had to be pure in order for God to actually dwell in their presence. Where does God now dwell? Oh, yeah. Who is the temple of the living God? Oh, wow. We are. We are. Now, let me ask you, does God live in dirty places? I'm sure we've seen Home Alone already this Christmas season in the phrase of Kevin McAllister. I don't think so. God does not live in dirty places. So what's happened? Has God either lost his holiness and he's become dirty, you know, just like one of us to live in us? Or has God actually done a work of cleansing us and cutting out that old dead heart and giving us a brand new heart, listen, that is as pure as his, that is zealous for good deeds. There's been a heart transplant. You're now pure. The very presence of God actually requires you to be pure, and you didn't purify yourself. He did for you. Now, here's the lie that we hear over and over and over. Here's the lie. Jesus lives in you, but you, Christian, like literally Christian, not like Christian, Christian, but Christian, Goldsmith, he lives in you, but you have a dirty heart. That's the lie. He lives in you, Leela, but you have a wicked heart. That is the lie. God does not live in dirty places. The truth is so much better. The truth is that that old wicked heart was crucified with Christ, buried, and we have been created new by the very grace of God. The truth is so much better. Our new heart is actually 100% compatible with his heart. Your desires of your heart is actually, are actually his desires. Here's what religion says. Religion says, Christians, look at your dirty heart. Cleanse your dirty heart, you Christian. God says, dirty heart? I cut that thing out. Haven't you read? I crucified it. I gave you a new one that I've actually created with my own righteousness. I've actually, actually etched my desires on your new identity, your new heart. Religion says, Christian, get your heart right. Christian, get your heart right with God. God says, get your heart right. I made you a right heart. I made you a right spirit when you first believed in my son Jesus. A spirit, a new heart that is 100% always right with me because I made it that way. There's a lie, but then there's a truth. No one likes being lied to. So what about obedience, right? 
A lot of times I'll hear when we talk about grace so much, we'll say, okay, we, we got grace down, but now let's, go, let's talk about some obedience. You know, what do we need to obey? What are some things we need to obey? Like, like grace and obedience are like on these two different ends of a spectrum or something. Well, Paul, you know, helps us out here in Romans chapter 6. He says, but thanks be to God that though you were, this is Romans chapter 6, Drew, that though you were, thanks be to God that though you were slaves of sin, look at this, I'm making it up, you became obedient from the heart. Your heart is actually obedient. Your heart has no desire to sin. You, the new you, the real you, has zero desires for the things of this world. Who you actually are is obedient from the heart. So obedience and grace are not competitors. Let's talk about grace a little bit. And okay, that's enough. Let's talk about obedience now. No, God has graciously made your heart obedient. You are, at your core, obedient. Our hearts want to do what Jesus wants to do. Now, of course, the enemy wants to distort this. The enemy wants to show, hey, look at that sin that just came out of you. See, your heart's still wicked. Your heart was wicked. We've seen this. But there's been a transplant. There's a brand new heart. And your desires and Jesus' desires are actually the same. So let's go back to our passage as we wrap up. Titus chapter 2. Verse 11 and 12. It's the grace of God. God graciously giving us this new heart that actually not only brings salvation, but it actually instructs us to say no to sin and yes to Jesus. But how? How does that work? And here's our journey marker for today. By revealing to us, Jesus reveals to us how to say no to sin, yes to Jesus, how to live godly lives by revealing to us who we actually now are. The first week, we are forgiven. Last week, we are his. This week, we are new. We actually are new. Have These are in your Bible notes. I have four closing thoughts that I just want to give us, and we're going to have the band come up. And by the way, we do the Bible notes thing so that you can, over the course of the week, like dive as deep as you want to into this stuff. I say this all the time. Do not ever take my word for something. We give all these scriptures to you in this little thing of the Bible notes so that you can at your leisure, and I want you to, I want you to dive, be like the Bereans, judge everything by what the scriptures are teaching. And these four thoughts, closing thoughts, are in your Bible notes. Number one, it's time that we embrace the true nature of our new heart. It's time we embrace the true nature of who we now actually are. Second Peter chapter 1, I think it's verse 4, says that we have become partakers of the divine nature. Nature speaks to identity. Here's the deal. There's a huge identity crisis in the church. We think that we're still slaves to sin, but the truth is we're not. We're new. We're free from that. And we are actually new with new hearts 
the desire what he desires. In Hebrews 8, don't take my word for it. Read it for yourself. In Hebrews 8, God says that he actually, when he gave you this new heart, he actually etched his desires, Chris, on your heart. He actually etched it in your new heart. So we need to learn the true nature of our new heart because we've been living in this lie that don't trust your heart. Go follow your heart. Well, Jesus, God's saying, wait a minute. I gave you my desires in your heart. We need to trust it. God has written his desires. Our hearts are now trustworthy. I don't have time to get into this because our time's already gone, but um, let me just try to say it really, really briefly. When I think of the nature of our new heart, I think of nature, you know, trees, flowers, plants, whatever. Um, and, I th- and hopefully this makes sense. It makes sense up here, but I don't know. I tried to use it in our community group this last Thursday. I got a lot of blank stares. So um, we'll blame it on them. Think about an orange tree, okay? An orange tree. How many laws does an orange tree have to live by in order to produce oranges? I mean, does an orange tree have to surround itself with do not produce bananas? Don't you dare get those plum nickels going, whatever that is. Is that a thing, a plum nickel? I don't know. Plums. Don't you, right? Orange trees don't have laws to live by because why? By nature, they produce oranges. So what is the true nature of your actual new heart? To produce the very desires of God himself. See that? Does that make any sense? I don't know. Maybe not. Number two, thought number two. There's no reason to be afraid of your new heart. The old heart, oh yeah, is deceitfully wicked, desperately sick. But you have a new heart. The core of Christianity is a heart transplant. In fact, Paul says in 2 Corinthians chapter 9, again, I put all these verses for you to go and look, that we are to give, to live, and actually to love from our new heart. We are actually to love and live and give from our new heart, 2 Corinthians 9. Let me ask you a question. It's right there. Why would God desire us to live from our heart if our hearts are deceitfully wicked and sick? Like, you know, there's some gray matter going on here. He's made them good. He's made them new. He's etched his desires in your new heart. Number three, sounds very simplistic, but just be who you actually now are. So much of us, we've heard this lie of, you know what, just, just Austin, just view yourself as God views you, brother. Just try to view yourself as God views you. Like God's got these Jesus goggles on, and he doesn't really see Jeff. He just sees, you know, Jesus when he's looking at Jeff. That sounds, you know, it sounds good. It sounds religious. But is that the gospel? That's telling us that, Jeff, you're not really righteous and new, so God has to put on some goggles to actually see you favorably. See yourself as God sees you. But that's not the gospel. The gospel is that the old Jeff, the old man, he's dead and gone. And you now are new, righteous, and holy. You have become the very righteousness of God in Christ Jesus. So it's not see yourself as God sees you, pretend, fake till you make it. 
This is see yourself for who you really now are, all by grace. See who Jesus is. See who you now are in him. And then we live in this world for who we already are. Now, here's number four. Here's probably the most important thought as we wrap up. It's this. Know the difference between its desires and your desires. Know the difference between its desires and your desires. Paul says in Romans chapter 6, he says, okay, we've died to sin. We've been given a new life. Therefore, do not let sin reign in your mortal body so that you obey its desires. Make no mistake about it. There is a power, an entity called sin that lives in your mortal body. And its desires are 100% contrary to God's desires, to Jesus's desires. Sin that lives in your body, it's not who you are. You've died to it. But its desires are wicked, sinful, 100% against God's desires. Know the difference between its desires and your desires. So what are your desires? And that's our passage that we've looked at today. You actually desire, you're zealous for good deeds because God has made you that way. So here's Christian maturity in, my, in a nutshell. I have to assess taking every thought captive that comes into this unredeemed, being renewed mind and identify, okay, is that my desire or is that its desire? Because if it's not God's desire, it's not my desire because he actually etched his desires in my heart. So spiritual maturity is coming to wisdom to know Yeah, evil, sin lives still in these mortal bodies, but it is not you. It was you. You once were married to it, but we've died, and we've been circumcised. We've been cut away from it, and we now have the desires that the Lord actually has. Our band's going to come up, and we're going to close out this morning with a song appropriately. This is who I am, because we need to believe who we actually are now. Today, I meant to say this at the beginning, we've kind of gone a little bit deeper than we normally go, but it's okay, because we need to see that we actually are new. We're actually new. We need to see who we actually are. God's desires are within you. He's made you with his desires, now new, as a new creation. If any man be in Christ, he is a new creation. The old is gone. The new has come. And so why in the world would we run to laws to live by when laws themselves actually increase the sinning? It's silly. The very same grace that saved us is the very same grace that instructs us. And it instructs us this morning by revealing to you that you actually are new. The desires of God for you have been etched on you, your new heart. Live from your heart. Give love from our hearts because he's made them new. Let's go ahead and stand and pray. Father, we thank you for this morning. And I know that this is so controversial because we've been fed a lie that says that we're not new, that we're still a slave to sin, 
and that our desires are sin's desires. Father, we would be silly to suggest that sinful desires are not still within this body. But God, I just pray that you give us a revelation this morning that its desires are not our desires. Oh, what victory that actually brings us. The law is the power of sin. But thanks be to God who actually gives us victory over this through the Lord Jesus Christ. Father, help us to see not a need to run for laws, but a need to just see who we actually are. We have been made obedient from the heart to live in the reality of who we are. God, I give these people to you. They're yours. They're people of your own possession. Father, our great desire is for Jesus to manifest through us, not sin. And so our desire is to now live by this life that you've given us now in us, fused to your life. Our spirit and your spirit have become one spirit, 1 Corinthians 6. Thank you so much. In Jesus' name, amen. Thank you again for listening to today's podcast of the teaching at Life Journey Church in Crozet, Virginia. We'd love to hear from you. If God is doing something special in your life, let us know by sending an email to info at lifejourneyva.com. Feel free to pass today's teaching on to any friends and family that you'd like, but please don't change any of it or charge for it. This podcast is made available for free as a ministry of Life Journey Church. If you would like to support the proclamation of the gospel of the grace of God, you can make a donation now on our website, lifejourneyva.com. Have a great day.